Let's get started. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for bringing us here together this morning. Thank you for the uh, the weather and for everyone's safety. And uh, Lord, just thank you for this opportunity we have to to study you, to learn about who you are, your attributes. Uh, And Lord, I just pray that as we consider these things, that they would impact our lives, that we would uh, grow to love you more, to understand you more. And Lord, that we would uh, be people who proclaim your excellencies as we are called to. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, continuing our discussion on the attributes of God this morning, we're going to start with omnipresence. So, um, our second omni, we did uh, we did omniscience last time. So, omnipresence. What does that mean? What's the definition of omnipresence? It's everywhere, all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a good. That's a good definition. He is present everywhere in the universe, um, but he's confined in no place. So that's a that's an important distinction that we will uh, we will discuss because sometimes you can have the idea that it's like, oh, well, if he's you know if he's if he's in this bowl, you know, and it's like he's everywhere, he must be in that bowl and you, you, you want to be careful you don't think about it the wrong way so, um, first text we're going to look at um, it's kind of lengthy and we're going to spend some time there, so probably a good idea to flip there, it's Acts 17 um, and we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 31 17, 20, actually 22 is where we're going to start. My heading is inaccurate. So starting in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined... uh, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there we have um, Paul confronting the the false worship um, of the Greeks. Um, And we have a kind of a discussion about who God is in comparison to the the Greek gods. So, I guess my first question is, where where do the Greek gods live? 
top of Mount Olympus. Okay, yeah. You can look at it that way, that they live on the, on the top of Mount Olympus. Is there another way to look at it? From, the, from just the day-to-day perspective of the Greeks? Didn't they have specific temples for each mm-hmm. one? Yeah. Yeah, so they've got their temples. And so the temple builder would pick a spot and say, okay, this is, this is where we're going to put the presence of, of Zeus. You know, this is where we're going to put the, the presence of Apollo. And so they're just, you know, planning it out and laying it out for everybody um, where all the different gods are going are gonna to have their presence. So how does that contrast with God? How does Paul bring a contrast here? Well, the contrast being that God isn't confined okay. to a specific place, and that in this, you don't build a home for Him. Mm-hmm. You are here because He built. He made you. Mm-hmm. Right. You're definitely going in the direction I want, but that's something. And I'd say the most direct contrast is just does not live in temples. Made uh-huh. by man. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. He's very specific. He, that's not where he lives. He doesn't yeah. live in temples made by man. <clears throat> But what does what does God do with respect to the to the people? According to Paul, he determines the boundaries. Exactly, exactly. It's flipped around, completely opposite of what the the Greeks are viewing. What they're doing with God, you know, they're 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 putting the gods in their various places, and Paul's saying, no, God. God set your spot. He picked where you would live, what time you would live. He determined all that for you. Uh, it's not the other way around. Your, your, your view of who's in charge of who lives where is just completely backwards. Okay. Um, so God is everywhere. He doesn't live in temples um, like, uh, like the, the Greek gods do. Um, So let's see. Apologize, I'm trying to trying to find my next point here. So he's determined where everyone is going to dwell. And the purpose of that, Paul adds, is that they should seek God um, and perhaps feel uh, their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So what does he mean by that? That's another locational type statement. Well, where where these false gods were confined to a temple, mm-hmm. God's not confined to, to mm-hmm. any certain location. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Mm-hmm. So God is um, God is everywhere. Right. So in terms of nearness, how near is he to us? Psalm 139 says he's closer than our very breath. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's he's as near as, as, I mean, as close as you can get. He's, our very existence is is derived from him. There's no way you can get any nearer. So, and even so, even though he, he is everywhere, he, he fills the heaven and the earth, he's also, it's like, to us, just perfectly near. And, he, you know, he's speaking to unbelievers. He's not just talking about... Uh, you know, God indwelling believers. He's speaking to unbelievers and saying, 
God is as near to you as your very existence. So when we think about the omnipresence of God, um, that's a that's a good place to start. That God is, God is He's not confined anywhere. He is everywhere, and He determines where we live rather than the other way around. Um, and that He is as near to us as our very existence. So Psalm 139, as you mentioned, um, verses 7 through 12. We looked at the first part of the psalm um, a few weeks ago, I think. But here it goes on. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So what do we see here? How does this address God's omnipresence? What is David contemplating here? I mean, starting with verse seven, it's, it's I can't. It's say, I can't even. I can't flee. I can't get away from you. You are always with me. So yeah, the the idea there, like if you wanted to get away from God, like where could you go? Or if you're just going about your your day and you're afraid that you might go somewhere that God isn't with you, like no, if everywhere you go, God's still there. You're you're not ever going to escape from His presence either. Whether that's a that's something you're seeking after or something you're fearing. Um, you can never uh, get away from God. You go to heaven, he's there. You go to hell, he's there. Um, no matter where you are, he's right there. And of course, for David, this is a, um, this is a sense of comfort. Um, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He also flips it around. At first, he's talking about where can I go or like flee. Mm-hmm. But then he also talks about in times of darkness, mm-hmm. where maybe seemingly you've been abandoned, okay. um, he's still there mm-hmm. too. Um, so kind of the opposite, where maybe you're looking for God's presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think both of those concepts are there. So whether whether you are fleeing from him or whether you're just afraid that he's gone, um, <coughs> either way, he is everywhere. You never go out of his presence. Um, Jeremiah 23 uh, 23 and 24 says am I a God at hand declares the Lord and not a God far away can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him declares the Lord do I not fill heaven and earth declares the Lord so we see similar language there but this is definitely much more on the side of people who are trying to escape from the presence of God so what's the idea here 
Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not far away? What's, what's the idea there? Any thoughts? If you were trying to, trying to avoid God, if you were hoping that he wouldn't catch you in what you do, that's Jonah. Yeah, yeah. That is true. Yeah, it's, it's no way we can get away from God, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like they think it's like okay, yeah, if I'm if I'm right here, then God's here. But if I if I, if I head over here, eh, God's not gonna God's not gonna mess with me there. Um, and yeah, and Jonah is. Um, Jonah is uh, is a good example of that. I mean, you think of the when Jonah was was on the ship and the storm came and everybody's like, oh, we need to pray to all our gods and you know and Jonah says, oh yeah, well I, I serve you know the God who created you know the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, and they're like, uh oh, you know, because they realize it's like, well, this isn't just some local god. This is the God that made everything, and He goes everywhere, and you can't you can't run from Him. Um, so definitely a um, a very good point that it's like He's He's everywhere. You cannot flee from Him. Now, if if God is everywhere, um, does that mean that everything is God? I mean, if God is here with us, if God is God is in this podium. Does this mean that this podium is somehow God? No? no. So am I gonna get it just a no? <laughs> yep. <laughs> nah. Just just dismiss the idea. Nah. What's the difference between pantheism and some form of theism? Mm-hmm, right. And I guess you could say in pantheism, God is everywhere, but it's worked out that God's in everything. Mm-hmm. They just stuck God in, in the furniture in the air and right. kind of made. Whereas, I mean, if you look at Genesis, God made everything. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, I am everything right. or become me or some sort right. of. You don't become part of God in some exist, you know, some ontological sense. Right. God made his creation. He's outside of his creation. Mm-hmm. Yet in some way he is still present around it, but he's not in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good distinction. I mean we don't we don't at all want to back off from God's being present everywhere, at every point in space. But we do need to maintain that there is a distinction between the creator and all of his creation. That's what we talked about, I think the first week we talked about um, God being the transcendent creator, that he is different, he is separate from his creation. So we never want to confuse the two. But we do need to still maintain that God is present everywhere. So another thing that comes up is that some sometimes in scripture you see the Bible talk about the presence of God in particular locations. Um, you see, for example, the um, when the Israelites are fleeing out of Egypt, um, and you see the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So you see the presence of God there in a particular place. Does that does that contradict uh, God's omnipresence? 
No, I think it goes back to perspective. Okay. Uh, we discussed this a few weeks ago, our perspective versus God's perspective mm-hmm. of uh, the pillar of fire, the cloud, was a visual representation for us lesser beings. Okay. Who need a constant reminder. Mm-hmm. But that does not <coughs> negate him being mm-hmm. everywhere, not right. present. Right. Yeah, we can, in a sense, we can talk about God being specially present in certain places, um, but you know, realizing that it, it's not changing where He's present because He's present everywhere. But but we can have specific things like, for example, and that's just one example, is that we have God manifesting Himself specifically to His people so that they have a manifestation of His presence. Um, we see when uh, Solomon uh, dedicated the temple. The, the temple was built, um, and the ark was placed in it. Um, and I'm in Second Chronicles 5, uh, 13 through uh, chapter 6, verse 6, if you want to flip there. Um, so so the, the temple had been built, the ark was placed inside, and it says uh, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud uh, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Then Solomon said, uh, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the assembly of Israel, uh, while all of the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who, uh, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised uh, with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought uh, my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city of all the tribes of Israel uh, in which to build a house, that my name might be there. I chose no man's prince over the people of Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And so there we see God basically placing his name in Jerusalem, He's, his presence is there in in a particular way to show God's people His presence and favor toward them. But then, if you just go down to verse 18, Solomon realizes that this isn't a problem with the omnipresence of God, and he says, uh, "But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built." So he, he realizes that, yes, God is coming and dwelling in this temple, but that it's that this temple doesn't contain God. God isn't confined to this temple because he fills all the earth and all the heavens. A few more examples. Um, we have uh, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. How does that begin? Our Father who art in heaven. Okay. Does that mean he's in heaven and not on earth? So what does that mean? So he is omnipresent, not just on earth. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that that particular prayer could be just pointing out one particular place that's maybe more significant to us. Uh, you know. Okay. So why why is that more significant uh, in this particular context? 
Well, I, uh, Jesus is talking about how holy is your name, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, humans tend to marvel at the heavens. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so uh-huh. God is there. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's where his throne and rule are. Mm-hmm. And so that goes along with what Casey said about God being hallowed or mm-hmm. or being exalted and holy. Yeah. And he rules from there. So uh, definitely a position of authority. Um, definitely very fitting for as we're considering praying to God. That we think about God's <coughs> position of authority of ruling overall. Um, not just some earthly person that we're, that we're bringing our request to. Right? But that we're that we're bringing our requests to the God of Heaven. So that's again, I think that's why that kind of location language is used there. Um, another thing that we have is um, the Son, God the Son. Um, in Hebrews ten four, it says that. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a very specific location if you if you just take it locationally. But we know that Christ is God. He is everywhere. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Christ doesn't exist on the left hand of God? Here again, that's a position of authority. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and as he completed his work on earth, you know, he... He was exalted. I mean, Philippians talks about the humiliation of Christ, but then mm-hmm. also the exaltation, and that's just a, a picture of his exaltation and his completed work for the mm-hmm. church. So, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, I mean, in the time, very much, if somebody is seated on the right hand of the king, that basically means it's like they're given a position of authority. And so that's, that's really all it's talking about. I mean, I know some people have like this almost this notion that's like you know God the Father sitting on a throne, and then you know right next to him is you know is Jesus, and that's not really the idea that we're supposed to get from that. Is you know is like is your seating order? It's it is just a a position of authority is the idea there. So just working our way through the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Um, Romans eight eleven says if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers. Well, what does that mean? How does that relate to God being present everywhere? I mean, wouldn't he dwell in unbelievers as well? If he's everywhere? He's, he's separating a difference between the blessing he gives to uh, his, the believers and his people versus uh, the unelected or non-believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but by saying the Holy Spirit dwells in, it's it's saying even though I'm omnipresent, there is a difference mm-hmm. in the way I'm present mm-hmm. with different people. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a change in the in basically the nature of the present. Maybe not a change, but it's like an additional presence. An additional manner of presence. I mean, it's really hard to even speak of it because it's like we're using, you know, biblically, you know, we're using locational language to speak of things that are almost not really locational, uh, but they are to convey the idea to us that um, that the Holy Spirit's interaction with us um, 
very intimate, you know, interaction with us is different than his interaction with uh, non-believers. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like the distinction is the difference is being present versus um, like actually being given like some of the power of mm-hmm. God through the Holy Spirit. Right. You know, yes. There's God is present everywhere, mm-hmm. um, but we are given the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And there's there's very much the idea of the power working it, and that's you even see that right there in that in that passage um, that uh, that He who raised Christ from the dead. Uh, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it's like you're very much being given power. You're being given resurrection life uh, through the spirit dwelling in you. But it is spoken of in positional language in scripture. So just important that we understand uh, those things. So that's kind of an overview of the omnipresence of God. Um, how do we apply this? What, is this? what does this mean for our lives, for our worship? Um, again, I, you know, it's important that this not just be academic. We've, we've you know, discussed the different ways that you know, we can talk about uh, omnipresence. But what does it mean for us? One, just the immediate application, it seems to me, is just, um, especially in times when things aren't well and God feels distant, mm-hmm. um, he's not. <laughs> right. Very true. Very true. Even even when we don't, it doesn't feel like God is there. Yeah. yeah. We, don't sense. we know he's there. Mm-hmm. Anything else? It's pretty significant. That is very significant, yes. Well, in our well, in our worship that we're about to do, that you know we are in God's presence, but so are the other saints as well, you know, because mm-hmm. God's present, and not just here upon this earth, but even in heaven mm-hmm. above. So, right. you know, we as the, the the invisible church as a whole gather to to worship Him and mm-hmm. stuff because He's present with His people. Yeah, which is a promise that He gave in the Old Testament and is mm-hmm. you know carried out through Christ and His right. Spirit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it's an amazing thing to think, and it's like we can never, like all of God's people in this life can never really be present with each other in a physical sense, but in a sense we are all present with each other because God is present with each of us um, in a very special way, um, and so yes, we have that communion of saints where we're all connected through Christ um, into one body. So yeah, that is a very good. A very good application. Anything else? I think another important thing, another distinction to make, um, learning about the nature of how this omnipresence works out, you pointed out a whole bunch of like special instances where <laughs> it's different, like mm-hmm. there's something different about it. So, And I think that's important because um, that means that meeting together as a church um, has a special significance versus like, oh, well, I can meet God anywhere, like on a walk in nature, or mm-hmm. you know, which is true, mm-hmm. um, but God has also <coughs> promised to meet his people in special ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you kind of actually have almost have two applications there. Yeah. Because one application mm-hmm. is, it's like, you can meet God anywhere. There's, yes. there's nowhere where it's like you can't just immediately go to God and, you know, pray to him. And it's like, he's there with you all the time. 
But then it is also true that there's a special sense in which he's present here in the gathered worship of believers. That's very good. Saying that just a little bit further, it's the gathered worship of believers, but he also states where two or three are gathered in my name, mm-hmm. I am there. Mm-hmm. And even if just two believers get together to pray, mm-hmm. uh, to study the Bible, mm-hmm. he is there in a more unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, also as you look at Scripture, there's a sense in which God is present even with unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And that, that can be a comfort for the church, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the world is pressing in and, and opposing the church, to know that, that God is present there, even to restrain, mm-hmm. you know, the evil that's there. But also, I think, as we pray for those that we know that don't know Christ, mm-hmm. you know, we, we think that oftentimes God is only working in his church right. gathered, but the reality is, is that God is work in the world, too. And so that gives us a boldness in prayer to pray against things that to us we look at and we think these things are impossible mm-hmm. but when we remember that God is present and powerful and, mm-hmm. and all these things and we can come with great confidence and assurance and not worry right yes very true anything else One of the applications that just kind of came up you know as we were going through some of it is the idea that we can't escape from God you know, so if we're trying to flee from God, it's not going to work. He's everywhere. All right. So there is the omniscience of God. So now we'll get the last omni. We got omnipotence. So what is omnipotence? What's our definition here? God's all-powerful. All-powerful. Yeah, omnipotent, right? Um, God is all-powerful. Um, the way the uh, the children's catechism put it puts it is he can do all his holy will, which is a, it's a good way to describe it. Um, it's sort of that God can do anything, but as we'll see, we, we need to be a little careful with that one because um, people can get confused on that. Jeremiah um, chapter 32 there's a couple uh, a couple places in here where it makes a statement about God's ability to do things uh, verses 17 and 27 um, verse 17 says "Ah Lord it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you and so there it's expressly stated there's, there's nothing that's just too hard for God to accomplish. And then God himself says it in verse 27. He says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Pretty obvious, right? Well, nothing's too hard for God. That's, a, that's, a, that's one, of my, one of my favorite memory verses right there is the Jeremiah 32, 27, because it's like, that's a good one to have handy um, when you're going through some difficulty. It's like, and you're just like, man, can, can God get this, make this work out? And it's like, hey, I'm, I'm the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? He can accomplish it all. Another well known passage. Um, 
Mark chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is dealing with a rich person who um, decides that uh, following Jesus isn't really what he's... Um, it's, not, it's not worth the cost. And, um, and so Jesus has a response to this. Uh, starting in verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it, it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So what do we see there? That's We, we have this little exchange here um, where Jesus is talking about the... Um, the difficulty of the the rich entering the kingdom of heaven. What's what what what's Jesus's point here? We can't do it with our own strength. It, it is it is only those who God has ordained mm-hmm. and called mm-hmm. who can come. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's presented as an impossibility. Um, I know that. I don't, I don't know how many of you have ever looked into this or heard teaching on this, but there are some people who will present the idea that the that the eye of the needle is like this really low gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and so like the camels would have to get down on their knees to get through the gate, and so it's like you, you just have to be really humble and get down on your knees is what Jesus is talking about. Um, but it's like there's just not any truth to that, so... Uh, I, I guess I think sometime like in the Middle Ages, somebody like built this gate, and it was like a place where people would you know go on pilgrimage to go see it. So um, you know, but it's like historically, there's there's no such thing. So Jesus really is talking about the eye of a needle. You know, and it's like you can't you can't fit a, a camel uh, through the eye of a needle, and you can see that the disciples' response to that you know fits. It's like they're just like shocked. It's like wow, um, if it's if it's that impossible for for wealthy people, you know, it's like who who could possibly be saved? And what's what's Jesus's response? Nothing is impossible. Yeah. It's like so you can look at things that are as from our perspective just absolutely impossible. Not a problem for God. He can handle it. He can do it. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. I think that, yeah, it's important to just point out sort of the obvious here, but, like, I mean, he does, he says all things are possible, but first he does say it's impossible for men. Like, he doesn't just say, right. oh, no, 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 it's possible. Right. Yeah. And he, and it he might goes, feel impossible, right. or no. Right. He says it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. That's that's actually <laughs> a really good point because it's it's not. I mean, to go back to the you know the 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 low gate, you know, it's not just like really hard. You really have to like work it up to humble yourself to get down on your knees and get <laughs> under this. But you just you just can't do it. It's absolutely impossible. Um, it is only through the power of God that any of us can be saved. Yeah, it's, it is very much the idea that's like all of us we're we're dead in our sins. We 
cannot um, come to faith in Christ apart from the the infinite power of the Holy Spirit coming and changing our hearts. One of the displays of God's power um, is just the way that he continues to deal with the world. He created the world, but then Hebrews uh, 1.3, it says, uh, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that's a, that's a pretty deep statement right there. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it, you know, it just makes sense, really, but um, just, you know, God created all these things, and, and God is the only thing that's eternal. Um, God is the only thing that is self-existent. So everything that exists, exists at his, at his will. Um, and I, I think it's safe to say that, like, if God just, like, stopped thinking about the world, that it would all just phew, cease to exist. That he is maintaining the existence of everything we see around us. And not just on this planet, but the whole universe. All of it is just maintained by his active upholding of it at all times. Um, and that's an immense amount of power. Um, we see uh, God's power displayed in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about this recently here as, um, as Pastor Rick has been going through Ephesians, but um, it's just very beautiful the language Paul uses here. Um, and he's, he's praying that the, that the Ephesians would have an understanding of this, uh, saying, uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope uh, to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so there you see God's great power in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him uh, to his position of authority. And that that's, that's the power that's at work in us. So a great display of God's great power. You know, Chris, I think just as you read that verse from Ephesians, it mm-hmm. made me think there's people who have power over our lives, mm-hmm. whether it's our boss or you know, whoever it might be, government authorities or, or others. You know, but he talks about an exceedingly great power. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even as we encounter other powers that might threaten us mm-hmm. and, and cause us to worry or to be fretful about things, we need to understand that it's not just that God's power is a power, mm-hmm. it is an exceedingly great power yes. you know, that goes above all yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, that is, that is a good point because it's like it, you really can just trust that like whatever powers come against you, it's like they're no match for the power of God. So, yes, that's a very good point. But, as we see God's power, as he tells us about it, and as we see it just in what we look at around us, we really only see a very small part of his power. Um, Job has a, a very good um, discussion of this, where he kind of marvels at the power of God and then states that we, that we don't really see it all. So I want to read this. This is from Job 26, verses 7 through 14. And Job says, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not spilled open under them. 
he covers the face of the moon and spreads over its uh, spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power the sea is stilled. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So there we see, like, Job in a, in a very, you know, poetic and beautiful way just describes, it's like, we see these things that God does that are just amazing, that are just beyond us. That I mean, it's like, no man has ever been able to accomplish these things. Um, this is this is all uh, a, a display of the great power of our Creator, but we just we just see a little bit. We just see the outskirts of His ways. Uh, we just hear a, a small whisper of the greatness of who He is and what He can do. So I think that's just a a really good um, kind of poetic way to describe that. So let's flip this around. What God cannot do. Is it is it accurate to say that there's things that God can't do? Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, the Bible actually says there's things that God can't do. As, um, sometimes that surprises people. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 17 and 18. says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what do we see there? What is it that God can't do? He can't lie. He can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Does that does that hamper? Does that restrict God's power? No, no. I think it highlights it. Okay. I I was just thinking about um, just His power being demonstrated at the, in Genesis when He's creating uh, creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's making creation. Um, things are made by His word. Mm-hmm. It, it's not describing him as like kind of pulling things together that right. already exist mm-hmm. and molding things. He just speaks it and mm-hmm. it happens. Right. And so it's impossible for him to lie because um, he's so powerful. Mm-hmm. That if he says that it's spoken, true, yeah, his spoken word is, <laughs> right. is true. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that is that is a good way to describe it. Um, yeah, that is a good point. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, I think the alternative, if, if you have a being as powerful as God that could lie, that's a terrifying It is idea. terrifying. <laughs> because it essentially would be the nature of Satan and the power of God. Mm-hmm. Where you could basically, I won't kill you. No, I will. And sort right. of, I'll kill you later. Sort of. It's right. this, you couldn't trust it. It'd be just living in absolute terror. Right. And wouldn't just, I mean... No promise in the Bible can be trusted if God can lie. Right. Nothing God ever said to any of the prophets. Well, we've just been lying at the moment, so 
Mm -hmm. Why bother? You know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, he could kill me anyway. Just go on living in absolute terror your whole life. Yeah, as I say, all of, as we as we pointed out before, all of the attributes of God work together, and so if you had an all powerful God who was not holy and just and faithful, you know, and all these all these good things, it's like that would be very scary. But fortunately, um, God does not use his his power for evil. Is there another way we can tackle this difficulty at all? I really like the way Casey dealt with it. But there is another way to deal with it. So. That doesn't go against his own nature. Yeah, that's the, that's the other one I was looking it's, for. It's, it's <coughs> his power is used. Can, that's why the, cat, the catechism, the shorter catechism, God can do all his holy will. Exactly. And you have to unpack what holy will is. There's a right. lot in there. Right. But part of that is not lying. Mm hmm not making a square circle right. that's irrational right. and it's unholy. Right. Right? It's, it being illogical is unholy. Mm -hmm. There's not some weird logic with God. Not existing, you know, I don't know if that'd be a little but God can't not exist either. Right. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, but yeah, that is ultimately what I was getting at, um, is that God can't, can't do anything against his nature. I mean, he has a perfect nature, and he would never even want to do anything contrary to his own purposes, his own nature, his own holy will. Um, God has no desire to speak that which is untrue, and it is impossible for him to do so. It's not that he lacks the power. It's not that he has, well, I'm really trying to lie, but I just can't do it. It's like, no, it's just like it's against who he is. Um... And Greg mentioned the square circle. Another one that often comes up is, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? What's the answer to that? I think, I think it was, was C.S. Lewis that talked about the, those sorts of arguments. Okay. And just that it, it doesn't say anything against the power of God because that, that's essentially, it's, it's suggesting like nonsense is what that, <laughs> that's right. basically suggesting. Like, right. uh, no, he can't. Uh -huh. um, not because he's not powerful, but because that's not... Right. That's well, not the rock one is a, essentially in itself logical nonsense. Yeah. The square right. circle is nonsense. Right, yeah. The rock is, well, if he can make it, he can lift it. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, how, it's how, big, big, it's a how big, rock, how big of a rock can God make? As big as he wants. As big as he wants. Yeah, Will it ever get it. so big that he can't lift it? Well, he made it, so he No. That's the, yeah. It doesn't, yeah. And so, I, I don't know. I, yeah, you hear those sorts of arguments. Right, and yes. that, It's like, that doesn't say, that doesn't mean, oh, well, then your God's not all powerful. Right. Because <laughs> right. he, can't, he can't make something he can't lift, so. Right. Therefore... He's not all powerful. Yeah. That's, yeah. That doesn't make any sense. But it's, that is why it's important to, to understand that when we talk about God's omnipotence, that, that you know He has unlimited power and can do all things. That it's we need to be careful that we also understand that there there are technically things that He can't do, but it's not because of a lack of power. And it's not a limitation either. And it's not a limitation not exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. In but fact, those things are impossible because they would be they would be limitations. <laughs> that is true. That is true. It's impossible for him to make a rock that he can't lift because that would mean that he's not right. all powerful. Exactly. 
Exactly. So yes. Um, but there will be people who will raise those objections. It's like, oh, well, you think God's all powerful? Well, how about this? You know. I think. It, I mean, it's you know, it's usually just an excuse to try to avoid having to listen to the gospel. You know, uh, an excuse to avoid having to confront a God who is going to hold them accountable for their sin. That's usually why these things are brought up. But it's good to be aware that people will say these things, and you should um, you should be prepared with a response. Um, another thing, uh, James 1.13 um, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there's just another example of a scriptural statement of something God can't do. God can't be tempted by evil. That's a good thing if you think about Satan fell for some reason, was created good, fell. He was tempted by evil. God can't even, it was obviously it was possible, Adam and Eve fell, obviously it was possible for them to be tempted. God can't be. It's not even like a, you know, it's just nope, it won't happen. Can't happen. Zero percent chance of it happening. Yep, God's God's holiness absolutely forbids that any evil is appealing to him. So we've seen what God can do. We've seen what God can't do. Um, so we know that God is all-powerful. So again, what's the application? Um, we've we've seen a little, again, application has kind of come out as we've talked about it, but what are some thoughts? What What does this mean for us? How does this affect our worship? How does this affect our lives? Before we go there, I just uh-huh. I want to bring up one of the I think one of the most difficult things to respond to when people okay. are questioning um, Christianity and the, uh-huh. the existence of God. But that that idea that yeah that there is evil, mm-hmm. um, so there are things contrary from, to God. Right. And you know if He created all things, and, and it's just that question of so yeah. how, if He can't tempt. Uh, people to do evil. Where did, what is what is evil, and uh, you know that's right. kind of getting up. But right, yeah. It's, I, it's, I guess I want to ask that question in the context of if God's all powerful, why why is this? Right. Yeah. It's 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 often presented in terms of if God is all powerful and He's good, then how can it be that there's evil in the world? Because you know. If he's good, he wouldn't want there to be any evil. And if he's power, or if he's all powerful, he has the ability to stop evil. And therefore, if he's good, if he's all good and all powerful, there shouldn't be any evil. But there is evil, so one of those two things must be false. And there have been people who have um, attempted to resolve the issue by getting rid of one of those things. Um, usually, they try to get rid of God being all powerful in some way or another. We talked about that to some degree with. Like uh, with his omniscience last time, it's like, does he know the future? He's like, oh well, yeah, he's all powerful, but you, know, you just can't see everything coming, you know. Um, and I mean, that's a to do a thorough discussion of that is is oh, maybe sure. longer than we have time for. But I, I mean, I, I just, think I think I would be interested to just hear. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think, think responses. But don't you think though that as human beings, we don't we we ask that question, but if God answered that question, what it would require. 
is bringing justice on all the evil of all of us and which would just totally annihilate and destroy us. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so it is really just sort of a straw man that we raised, you know, because uh, God is long-suffering and patient with the evil, but it doesn't mean that he's not able to, to, to deal with that. But he chooses not to do so because he would just wipe out his entire creation. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think, while, while it sounds like a really good argument, you know, in many ways it's, it's not. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. If God just dealt with all evil, it's like we just we would just all be gone. There's an assumption in that question that an all-wise, all-knowing God could have no purpose with the existence of evil. Yeah, yeah. Which is the unstated assumption. Yeah. And everybody asks questions or makes statements from that assumption. Yeah. And you have you would have to prove that assumption right. in order for the rest of the argument to be valid. Yeah. There's really no way just to sort of do it philosophically. Yeah. Because you're not a so. Yeah, I think I think just like just like a baseline biblical answer is that um, God has a purpose for all the evil that happens. He could prevent all evil, but He has good purposes that make it just and right for Him to allow evil to occur. Um, again, I mean, it would be a really big discussion, but um, to to kind of play off of what Greg is talking about, in a sense, it's very much like. Um, a child who um, thinks that it's like, well, their parents are unjust to spank them when they do things wrong. Because from their limited perspective, they don't see how this is a good thing that their parents are doing. For them, it just looks like it's an evil. I'm getting spanked. That's, you know, but from their limited perspective, they can't see what's going on. And it, I think it very much is the case that if we had God's perspective, and we saw all the evil that ever happened in all of history, we would say, yes, this was, this was good that this happened to accomplish God's good purposes. And I think it's just our limited perspective that we look at the evil. That, I mean, from our perspective, it, you know, we see terrible things. And we say, how could this ever be anything that's, that's good and right and just? But if we had God's perspective... I think from a biblical perspective, if we had God's perspective, we would say, yes, everything that God did, everything that God allowed, everything that happened in history, God is perfectly justified to allow that to happen. That was the, that was the good thing for him to do. And I think a very, this is just one of my favorite passages, especially on this topic, it's just Romans 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, explains it so well, and, and to sum it all up, it, it comes back to I am the creator, I am sovereign, and I know better. I mean, who, what, does the potter, or does the, does the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? As humans to our creator, do we look at God and say, why did you create me this way? Why did you create evil, or not create evil, but allow evil into our world? It's, he is so much more powerful than us that we can't argue that, we can't, uh, we need to accept his will. I know I summed that up very poorly, but I feel like Romans 9 mm-hmm. explains that very, very elegantly and well. Yeah, but that is a, a huge discussion, so I apologize we're going to have to no, 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 no. I just, I just wanted to 
throw that throw that out there. Right. I feel like you can't you can't talk about God's all powerfulness. And right. We'll, we'll 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 try to when we get to the goodness of God. We'll try to we'll try to focus on that one a little more. So maybe maybe we'll get a, a more thorough answer. Um, we are basically out of time. Any quick like applications anybody's thought of that we haven't already addressed? I mean, the first question that I asked is just, do we act like? Do we do? Do we act in accordance that this is reality? Yeah. And the answer is right. no. I think I think you are right. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of the reasons why I like you know the the Jeremiah thirty two twenty seven passage having that memorized because it's like it is just so easy to just like think that's like uh, yeah this problems I'm facing they're just they're just too big it's like they can't be dealt with it's like oh wait a second God says behold I am the God of all flesh is anything too hard for me and I just have to remind myself of that it's like okay no God's got this. It's it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna turn out the way he wants it to because he's not gonna be limited by the circumstances. He can do it all. So another thing is um, just remembering the power of prayer as we pray. It's like we're praying to somebody who can who can do anything. There's you know it's not like well God really appreciate it if you tried to do this. It's like no, I mean. It's in his purposes. He's able to do it. So um, that can that can give us great confidence in our prayers. And not that we can just pray to him, but he, but he hears us too. And I think even when we don't know what to pray, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we just you know we might say, "Lord, help me do this or that," rather than looking to God to work and and even trusting that He knows what's best. And has the power to, to carry that out. So we can just cry out to him and say, Lord, this is a situation in my life. Please deliver me or help me or whatever the situation might be. Any final thoughts? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you. We, we thank you that you are present here with us today in a special way as we worship you and Lord, we thank you that you are all-powerful, that there is uh, nothing that is too difficult for you. Lord, I just pray that we would just continue to meditate on who you are, on your great excellencies, and Lord, that it would impact our lives, impact our worship, that we would uh, live in a way that is uh, worthy of the calling of which you have called us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.